Lord, we pray that as this gospel has just been read in the body of the church, so your word may find rest in the very core of our being and may produce quality of living that is distinctive for Jesus our Lord. Amen. Good morning. It's good to be back in this church where I've been in the past sometimes, and uh, it's well worth flying across the Atlantic for last night. I guess that um, in this past few days, we have been putting the Christmas decorations back in the attic, and we'll forget all about them for another year. It's a bit like that with our baptism, and baptism is going to follow uh, after this talk this morning. Yes, we've been baptized, but we don't think about it much. It's tucked away in the attic. It's dusty. It's almost forgotten. Until a lovely occasion like today reminds us of it. My son Tim has been a long-term missionary in Pakistan. If someone, a Muslim gets baptized, he's very likely to be killed, and probably by a member of his own family. If he's not killed, the family will have nothing to do with him again. Uh, In Judaism, it's similar. If a Jewish person becomes a Christian, then the family will conduct a funeral service for the person who's been baptized and will never speak to them again. It is tough to be a Christian in many parts of the world, particularly in Asia, and yet the gospel is spreading like wildfire. Why does baptism arouse such passions? Because it is the decisive defining mark of real Christianity. We'd better look at it and go back to the very beginning. And in the very beginning of all this, a century of civil war had ended. The whole known world was now under a single government, that of Rome. One language, Greek, was spoken everywhere. And one people, the Jews, had spread over most of the empire and were celebrated not only for their commercial skills, but for their exclusive belief in one God. The stage was set for the next stage in God's self-disclosure. It was time for Jesus. But before Jesus comes his cousin and forerunner, John. John the Dipper, they called him. John was the one who introduced baptism. And John was the biggest news that had hit Palestine for a long time. He stirred the country to its roots. And the heart of what he did was to baptize. And it caused a major scandal. You see, Jews were very clear that all non-Jews were Gentile dogs. They were unclean. And if any of them wanted to come over into Judaism, 
they had to sit in a special bath called a tebilah and to wash away their Gentile impurities. But here was John treating the chosen people as if they were Gentile dogs. He told them that religion would not save them. And it won't save us either. He told them that being children of Abraham would not save them. There was one door into the kingdom and one only. It was repentance before God and the mark of it, baptism in the Jordan. No pedigree, no good deeds could render it unnecessary. It was essential for the Pharisees. It was also essential for the ordinary people who didn't take much notice of these things. Only one way. It was indispensable if you were going to get into the coming kingdom. The new deal that everyone was waiting for. Nobody was so bad that they were excluded. Nobody was so good that they didn't need it. It demanded real repentance that led to a change of life. It was public. It was unashamed. And uh, verse 12 in this passage in Matthew 3 um, suggests that baptism was a pointer to the last judgment. Because when Jesus came, his winnowing fork would be in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the granary, but the chaff will be burnt with unquenchable fire. It speaks of judgment. And John is saying that you either undergo God's judgment on your sins in symbol in the Jordan, or you will have to face it for real later on when you meet him face to face. No wonder it stirred the country. Above all, it was a preparatory rite. Verse 11 of Matthew 3 says, I baptize you with water for repentance. But one who is more powerful than I comes after me. I am not worthy to carry his sandals. It was a preparatory rite for Jesus, who would inaugurate God's kingly rule, his counterattack against evil that had engulfed the scene for so long. He would cleanse the conscience and he would bring the forgiveness of sins which John's baptism pointed to but could not confer. And he would fulfill the hopes of the prophets and put God's Holy Spirit into the lives of those who came in penitence to ask for it. What an amazing first installment of the baptism teaching of the New Testament. Imagine, therefore, this wild man of the deserts, John the Baptist, standing in the Jordan up to his waist as the early paintings in the catacombs portray him. And he's baptizing one and all. As they go confessing their sins, the water sweeps over them and they come up the other side of the river ceremonially to a new life. Imagine him then standing there and he's approached by the most famous baptism candidate 
in all history, Jesus. Why does Jesus come to be baptized? All the evangelists are clear that he has no sins of his own to confess. What on earth is he doing here? And that was John's question too in verse 14. John would have prevented him being baptized, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? And Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for it is proper for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented and Jesus was baptized. we look at that a bit more in a moment. He has no sins to confess, but still he goes through baptism. He is identifying with sinners. That's the way in which he's fulfilling all righteousness. He is identifying with us so that we may have the privilege of being identified with him. If Jesus was really going to act as proxy for guilty men and women on the cross, he must fully identify with us. And here in the Jordan, he is doing just that. It was a dummy run for Calvary. Here was Jesus who had done no sin, identifying himself with sinners like us in the waters of baptism as a picture of what he had come to do and what would be worked out in blood on that terrible cross a few years later. Because it was there at Calvary that he would carry in awesome reality the sin of the world, which he was doing in dramatic symbolism when he was baptized. It was at Calvary that he brought about the forgiveness to which John's baptism pointed but could not confer. And as Jesus came humbly and obediently to his baptism, four strands stand out like colors in a rainbow. All four strands are part of Christian baptism. Here's the first one. He was assured of his sonship. You are my son, the beloved. Verse 17. Jesus was, of course, already son of God. And the evangelists know that. But his baptism was the right in which this was publicly expressed. He received powerful assurance in that baptism that he was indeed the son of God in a unique sense. Now, of course, we can't go directly from the sonship of Jesus to our own. He was son of God by nature. We are sons and daughters of the Lord by adoption. He could cry, Abba, dear daddy, by right. We can only do so because he allows us to. Nonetheless, we are children of the Heavenly Father, not by pedigree or by good works or by being Episcopalian, but because God, in his incredible generosity, has adopted us, gutter snipes as we are, alongside his beloved son, Jesus. We can stand tall because we're accepted into God's royal family. You have received the spirit of sonship, Christ Paul. 
When we say, Abba, Father, it is the Spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. There it all is in Romans 8, 17. No wonder it gets up the noses of atheists and Jews and Hindus and Muslims. It is a breathtaking status. Sonship in God's family. And it's all a gift. It's all a gift. Here's the second strand in Jesus' baptism, which we can take for ourselves. He was called to be not only God's son, but God's servant. In verse 17, what looks like one quotation from the Old Testament is actually two. This voice from heaven says, this is my son. And then, the beloved in whom I am well pleased. They come from different parts of the Old Testament. This is my son comes from Psalm 2, verse 7. It's a royal psalm. The king is seen as, in some sense, a son of God. But then the second half of that quotation, the beloved in whom I am well pleased, comes from Isaiah 42.1. It is the first of these great servant songs where a coming great one is seen to be the special servant of the Lord who would, in due course, carry away their offenses. And so you've got this double role for Jesus. Not only my son, but the servant role. My servant whom I uphold, in whom my soul delights. And the hardships and the opposition and the death and the wonderful fruits of that death which the servant's death would bring about, culminate in the Old Testament, in the last of the servant songs in Isaiah 53, which speaks so clearly of Jesus. And so do you see what's happening in this quotation? The highest conception in Judaism, God's Son, is united with the lowest picture of the coming great one, that you find anywhere in Israel, and nobody wanted it for themselves, thank you very much, to be the despised and accursed son who was the servant of the Lord, the lowest role that nobody wanted. And both sonship and servanthood are brought home to Jesus at his baptism. He, the son, was called to face obedience and hardship and death as the servant of the Lord. And so are we. There is a good deal of complacency and triumphalism around in Christian circles today. It's comfortable. We want riches now. We want ease now. We want health now. We want spiritual gifts now. And you don't hear a lot about the call to suffer and to serve and to face being despised and spat at. I was in a mission recently. We were carrying a rough cross through the road and people turned away and some of them just spat at it. That will happen increasingly in the United States. But Christian sonship cannot be divorced from the suffering 
and the tough road of the servant of the Lord. They are part of the one baptism. And when things go badly and hard for you, don't say, as so many do say, oh, why should this happen to me? Friends, this is what you signed up for in your baptism. You're a child in the family. And you're also going to follow the suffering servant. If the head gets lacerated going through the hedge of suffering, and our Lord's head was so lacerated, then his body is going to get lacerated as well. Here is the third strand that comes in the baptism of Jesus. He was anointed, we read in verse 16, with the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit came mightily upon him. He was, of course, no stranger to the Holy Spirit. He had been conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. But now he was starting his ministry. And Isaiah's prophecy in his Isaiah 11:2 was coming good. The Spirit of the Lord would rest upon him to equip him for that ministry. That prophecy was being fulfilled, and it was very important. In the Old Testament, the Spirit of God is there, yes, sometimes for a king, sometimes for a prophet. He was given, but the Spirit could be withdrawn as it was withdrawn from Saul and various others in the Old Testament. Think of Samson, for example. The Spirit comes, but the Spirit can be withdrawn. But with Jesus, the Spirit rests. The Spirit is never withdrawn from Jesus. And he's never withdrawn from the followers of Jesus, who at his ascension gave this wonderful, lasting gift to his people, the Holy Spirit, who would never be withdrawn. And that is one of the most precious strands in Christian baptism. The permanent presence of the Holy Spirit is offered to us. Of course, we need to claim it, but the offer is there. The offer is going to be made in a few minutes to this little one. The offer of forgiveness. The offer of God's indwelling Holy Spirit. But that little one's going to have to claim it for himself or herself. I'm not sure. It's a him. It's a him. For himself when he grows up. It's not automatic. It's as though I was to give him a check. Saying this check is for all the blessings of the new covenant. Signed, Jesus Christ, signed in his blood. And that check will be kept in his back pocket until he cashes it. A check does you no good until you take it to the bank and you say, please, I want my share in this. And that is what Christian baptism is like. It's like God's check. All the blessings of the kingdom, justification, entry into the kingdom, forgiveness of sins, the first installment of salvation, all of that is wrapped up in this sacrament of baptism, but it's not automatic. God takes the initiative and gives it. We have to take our responsive action and claim it. And so I would say 
to all of you here today. Let this baptism of this little one be a challenge to you. The child has nothing to offer. Comes at the Lord's invitation. And the Lord writes him this magnificent check. Which he'll have to claim. Have you claimed that check that was offered to you at your baptism? If you have been baptized but you've never welcomed the life-giving Holy Spirit into your life, it's like having a picture frame but no picture. It's like having an electric drill but no electricity. It's like having a shell but no nut. It's like having the promise but no fulfillment. The check, but no cashing. Baptism says, hey, I want to flood you with my Holy Spirit so that you can begin to live the servant way. And that's exactly what you find in the beginning of chapter 4 in Matthew. Jesus, anointed by the Holy Spirit, tested in the wilderness, then launches out into his ministry. And that's the fourth strand in this rainbow of baptism. He was commissioned for witness-bearing. Jesus did not only receive in his baptism a warm assurance that he was the Son of God, a powerful experience of the Holy Spirit, a premonition of servanthood. He was commissioned in his baptism for ministry. That commissioning was followed by a period of doubt and testing in the burning wilderness of Judea. And he was taken there by the Spirit who had settled upon him in his baptism. Chapter 4 verse 1 says so. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into this wilderness experience. Receiving the Holy Spirit is no insurance policy against hard times. It enables us to survive them as Jesus did, and get on with the job. Jesus came back from the desert, full of the Spirit, and he burst upon the scene, telling people the good news of God's presence and God's power to change them, God's involvement in human affairs, God's willingness to have them back into company with him, and saying the time is fulfilled the kingly rule of God has drawn near. Repent and believe the good news. Exactly the same message as John the Baptist. Believe the good news of forgiveness and of sonship and of the spirit and of the privilege of joining in being God's ambassadors to society. That is what Jesus did when the spirit came upon him at his baptism. It was a commissioning for ministry. And friends, it is for you as well. Baptism is the ordination of the laity. And in the eyes of the New Testament, we are all laymen. The word laos means the people of God and it includes every Christian person. When the Spirit baptized the first disciples at Pentecost, they immediately began to preach the good news and to call on all and sundry to repent, just like their master had done. 
The baptism of Jesus then, while unique, has these four strands in it which also apply derivatively to ourselves. It is the pointer to forgiveness. It is the pledge of the Spirit. It is the mark of sonship. It is the call to the path of the servant. And it is commissioning for ministry. Those are all aspects of Christian baptism. But Christian baptism actually takes us deeper into the baptism of Jesus himself, no less. And this baptism has three great strands woven into it. There was the baptism of repentance in the Jordan, administered by John, with which Jesus willingly identified himself. We have to go through that water of repentance. Secondly, there was the baptism of the cross. Remember how he said, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and I'm all strained out until that is accomplished. There on that cross, he dealt with human sin to provide pardon for sinners, acceptance into God's family. And we need to be involved into that and to claim it for ourselves. And then there was the baptism of the Spirit, as the Spirit came powerfully upon him here and upon the first Christians at Pentecost and equipped him and them for ministry. And so we are caught up with Jesus in all this. We go down with Jesus into that water of repentance. And I hope there will be lots of water around this morning. We claim that justification that he won for us on the cross. And we ask the Holy Spirit to come and fill us for service. Three strands in one baptism. It's no dusty picture to be left in the attic. It is a priceless heirloom for us all. And I will end with some words from Azariah, who was a very humble Christian in um, India some years ago. And to his great surprise, he became Bishop of Dornacle. And the, 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 he inherited a diocese made up of sort of outcasts, which are very common in India, people right at the bottom of the pile. And by the time he'd finished his episcopate, there were over 30,000 believers in that little diocese. And somebody asked him, what was the secret of it? And he said, well, every time I baptize somebody, I get them to say after me, I I'm a baptized Christian. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. And woe to you and me as well. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this priceless sacrament that you have left. We pray for the little one to be baptized today, that he may cash the check that is being given to him, and that he may become your servant, your son, filled with your spirit for ministry. And we ask that every one of us in this church of the ascension may be caught up into what our Lord Jesus himself has done for us by that baptism in the Jordan on the cross and the baptism of the Holy Spirit that he offers to come and flood our lives if we will let him. Come, Lord, do your work in and through this lovely church to the glory of your name. Amen.